up because you are in the Hoodwood. I'm the Black Bandit, KJ Green, welcoming you to another edition of Sports in the Hoodwood for January 14th, 2023. Coming up in this edition, CFP Postmortem, a real autopsy, how Georgia eviscerated PCU. Coaches on the hot seat, coaches getting the gate. Who's next? Who got who got the gate? And who do I think might be prime candidate for some really good coaching spots? It's playoff time, wild card weekend, or should I say super wild card weekend. Review all the games, who I think will be moving on to the next round. Of course, you'll always have the Hoodwood Hot Five. Got that, get slapped. Final word from the Wood about black coaches. Are they getting a fair shake? Buckle up your seatbelt, put on your crash helmet. It's Sports in the Hoodwood. It's coming at you. Let's go. score again they finally caught off the dogs literally and figuratively at 65 to 7 i'm your man kj green welcoming you back to the hoodwood for another crazy exciting edition sports commentary analysis and all sorts of takes and this isn't a take this is just basically plain and simple georgia absolutely kicked the living crap out of texas christian 65 to 65 to 7. <laughs> I mean, I didn't watch the game because I pretty much figured it was going to be a foregone conclusion. I got home Monday evening, turned on, I checked the score, and it was 17 to 7 in the first quarter. I'm thinking, wow, Georgia's getting out fast. I didn't watch the game. I didn't see a reason to. I figured Georgia was going to have its way with Texas Christian. Kirby Smart was going to call off the dogs. And I like when we say calling off the dogs, it's just funny what you're saying because it is the Bulldogs and they like to call themselves the dogs. But you figured Kirby Smart was going to call them off somewhere middle of the third quarter, get a lot of scrubbinis, freshmen, younger players to say they played their national championship. Kirby Smart didn't call off the dogs till the fourth quarter and deep in the fourth quarter. Stetson Bennett put in work. I mean, his six touchdowns got him the most outstanding player of the game. But the game was a route from the from I would say about halfway through the first quarter on. I mean, the 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 the, the Horn Frogs school had the ball first, went three and out and punted. And you're thinking, not a good sign. If you are Texas Christian fan, you're thinking. The best thing they could have done was rumble right down the field and score and let Georgia know, hey, we're here for the game. We're not a side prop. But they went three and out. Georgia went 57 yards in five plays in a little under three minutes and was already on the board. And you're thinking, Texas Christian, you better get your act together or you're going to get stomped. 
Three plays into their second drive. Fumble. Georgia catches that in and on field goal. And TCU figures that they dodged a bullet. You know, they it was one of those things. It could have been 14-0 real early, and that would have really been the death sentence. But, to their credit, they go five plays, 75 yards, their best drive of the game. Max Duggan scores from two yards out. It's 10-7. And you're thinking, okay, now let's buckle in for a real fight. Texas Christian is, you know, shook off the, the the stage fright, and they're here to play. You know, they, they stood tall with Michigan. They're going to do it again. It's going to be, oh, jeez. No. I'm not, I, I'm not even going to fool, fool anybody by even trying to push that narrative. You look at the, t- at the, at the, uh, the play chart. After that touchdown, they made it 10-7. Georgia scored right away. Four plays, 70 yards, just like that. And you could just see TCU was like, uh, oh, we're in trouble. Yeah, you're in trouble, TCU. Because now this is the drives after TCU, I mean, beg your pardon, Georgia made it 17-7. Punt, Georgia touchdown. Interception, TCU, Georgia touchdown. Interception, touchdown, end of half. It's 38-7. And it was just like, bam, 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 bam. And TCU had this looking tilt. In their, in their face because Georgia just kept hitting them again and again and again and again. Four straight touchdown drives right down the field. And aside from, I mean, that Georgia had two drives. One, both of them were 11 plays. One was 92 yards. One was, eight, was 66 yards. Just punishing TCU. And you're watching the game and you're thinking, are you going to hit them back? I, I, I liken this to two different fights. One fictional, one real. Uh, George Foreman fighting Muhammad Ali in 1974, Rumble in the Jungle. George Foreman just wailing on Ali. Ali grabs him in a clinch and says, is that all you got? And George Foreman recalled later that he thought, that's about it. And the thing was, it was just like you're looking at TCU hoping that they would do something to get back in the game. And Georgia kept hitting them and hitting them and hitting them. And like the line, the line of the uh, 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 the fictional uh, Adrian Balboa watching her husband Rocky getting absolutely pounded on by Clubber Lang, shrieks, hit him back! And you're wanting TCU to hit them back. Never happened. It's 38 7 and a half, and you're just going, oh Lord, how are we going to make this even be halfway competitive? Georgia punted to start the second half. And you're thinking, okay, maybe a three and out. If TCU can score, have a little bit of, you know, self respect, pride, they go three and out too. Georgia was like, Phew. We gave you an opening. Y'all ain't gonna take it. Who we just gonna keep? We just gonna keep drilling you some more. The next three times Georgia touched the ball, they scored touchdowns. It went from thirty-eight. 
Yeah, I, I should. I, I stand corrected. Not the first. Yeah, the, for the next four times that Georgia touched the ball after they traded punts, they scored tw- touchdowns. 27 points in the second half. And Georgia could have hung 100 on them. I really do think they could have. They really could have tried for 80, 90 points and probably could have gotten it. I have never seen a team so eviscerated, so beat down, so completely discombobulated. I, I liken it to when Miami played Nebraska in the BCS championship game in 2001. Miami was so much better than Nebraska. Nebraska looked like they were playing in mud. Miami won that game 37-14. This game in comparison, it, it made like, like Miami was playing patty cake with Nebraska. This was a beatdown. Georgia, for its part, completes an undefeated season. 29-1 over the last two full seasons. Two national champions. Their only loss was an SEC title game to Alabama last year. That's it. The only two games, the only two games that anybody has stayed with Georgia was last week of Ohio State when when the game went down to the final kick, well, one-point game, and a 26-23 game against Missouri in Columbia back in October. That's it. In the last two years, and, and that's what I think is funny because my beloved Bearcats stayed with this team four quarters. But there are some that knock the Bearcats and say, oh, well, they were a flash in the pan. They didn't get eviscerated that bad by either Georgia or Alabama. 58 points? Cincinnati hasn't been beaten that bad since they lost 70-7 to to Louisville in 2004. <laughs> You just don't get beat like that in a national championship game. And if it's any consolation to TCU, well, there's no real consolation. You got your brains beat in. You might be the class of the Big 12 going forward, but there's going to be that kind of, I don't know, teams from your conference, they got they, they got their butts beat. Kansas State got whooped by Alabama. And TCU got beat by Georgia. So the doubt, the the seeds of doubt have already been sown in. And it may be, I mean, I don't think next year you're going to have a team from the Big 12 unless someone goes undefeated. And even then, you're still going to get that that look of suspicion. They're suspect. Meanwhile, Georgia will likely be the preseason number one next year. And they will be the best team in the country until someone knocks them off. Plain and simple. Now with the conclusion of the NFL season, and like I said before, we will get into the full picks for the Super Wildcard weekend here later, but the day after the regular season is over is usually they call it Black Monday, which I hate anything, any kind of connotation that says black anything that means something negative. That being said, you knew it was going to happen. Teams were going to be 
calling in coaches and saying, you know, we're going to go into a different direction and we thank you for your service, but we're going to go somewhere else. Basically, coaches are getting the gate now. Nathaniel Hackett has already been, got the gate on the day after Christmas in Denver. Matt Rule got booted after seven weeks in Carolina. Frank Wright gone after after eight weeks in Indy. You had those t- those coaches gone before the season ended. What you were waiting for was the other shooter drop, another coach to get fired. The first one was Lovey Smith, formerly of the Texans. Now, I think Lovey Smith got put in an untenable situation. I really do. It was. One of those situations, he came in after um, David Culley had one season, another coach of color, and I'll get to that in my final word. But Lovey Smith was put in an untenable situation, a team with no quarterback, barely had a running game. Damian Pierce, I think his fine rookie season was wasted. A suspect defense and... You go. You start from the tie on the opening weekend, and the game and the games just went really downhill from there. They only went three and thirteen after that initial tie, but they did manage to play fairly tough the last few weeks, pushing Kansas City up to overtime, pushing the Dallas Cowboys to near disastrous loss. Um, but they got smashed by the Jags. I had said that they were going to win a couple more games at the end of the season, and they did. They um, knocked off the Titans, like I I was pretty sure that that was going to happen, a fading Titans squad, and they beat the Colts at the end of the season on a last-second touchdown. That being said, it cost them the number one pick in the draft. Lovey Smith got fired. You rarely see a coach get fired like that after such a rousing win, but there are so many problems in Houston. You can't even get. You can't even begin to start of how you're going to make this team competitive, much less a winner. And their fourth coach in four years that shows lack of stability, that shows lack of uh, of any kind of plan, any kind of vision. And what coach is going to want to go to Houston? Not saying anything is wrong with the town, other than their university, basketball team, but I'll, I digress. But it seems that that city can't hold on, that organization can't hold on to or isn't willing to hold on to a coach long enough. And Lovey Smith, for his part, I think he was put in a situation he knew he couldn't win. And it just was a sad situation. It really was. Denver, that's a mess in itself with Russell Wilson. Nathaniel Hackett showed he couldn't hack it. Hey, a play on words. But he's probably going to end up back in Green Bay as their offensive coordinator. That said, he wasn't ready for the coach's chair. He just crumbled. And of course, I already talked about Indy, where Frank Wright got shown the door. Jeff Saturday's probably not going to hold on to that job. Another coach of color, Steve Wilkes, had Panthers playing competitively. He might be able to hold on that job after taking over from Matt Rule. So you have Houston, Denver, Indianapolis, Carolina placing their coaches. Wilkes may be able to keep his job. Arizona gave Cliff Kingsbury the gate. 
Now, he was supposed to be the quarterback whisperer. He was going to be able to work with Kyler Murray and get them rumbling and rolling pretty good. That team played good for half a season last year. They, but they had built up enough capital where they were able to slip into the playoffs. They got murdered in the first round by the Rams. So people were going, you know, is Kyler Murray really the quarterback we think he is? Or is Cliff Kingsbury the problem? That being said, the team was supposed to, and I say supposed to, be better. Lots better. Or at least maintain. Team went 4-13. Kyler Murray was hurt. Running game never jumped off. DeAndre Hopkins missed half the season on suspension. And the team just never really gelled. Notoriously bad finishers last year. They were even worse with a 1-7 second half. Cliff Kingsbury got the gate Monday. So who's going to replace them? Let's look at some candidates who could replace these coaches, uh, could be filling these spots. I'm looking at, once again, Eric Bieniemy, offensive coordinator of Kansas City. Sooner or later, he's going to get his shot. He deserves it. He's long overdue. Also, you have uh, Demeco Ryans, defensive coordinator of, uh, of the 49ers. Another great young black candidate. I think ready to make the move. Also, Byron Leftwich, offensive coordinator of Tampa Bay. Another one played the game. Bright offensive mind. Another one I think should be making that step up. Now, how many of them are going to get hired? Maybe one, maybe two, maybe. And I'm not even sure about that. We, you know, we all talk about the Rooney rule and this, this, and that, that kind of horse shit. But it's just like, to me, it's, it, it's window dressing. It's not something that, coach, that general managers and owners really want to follow through on. They want somebody in their old boys network. They want somebody that looks like them. They're not trusting. Now, as it stands now, you have, um, going off the top of my head, Robert Saleh, uh, Mike Tomlin, Todd Bowles, um, Mike McDaniel in Miami, and Ron Rivera. Those are the only coaches of color in the National Football, right, Football League right now. There should be more. And I'll get to that more in my final word from the wood. But right now, coaching carousel is starting to spin. Who's going to be able to get on and get off? It's anybody's guess. Now, let's take a timeout. Come back with the NFL. What week is it? It's Super Wild Card Weekend. The teams, have jumped, the teams who have not qualified have been excused. And now the best of the best are slugging it out on the way to... Glendale, Arizona, for Super Bowl 57. Blue Blue comes back at you after this. Is today your last day on Earth because you are being deployed to space tomorrow? Have you just turned 18 and you're ready to get out of your parents' house? Has your granddaughter gotten her boyfriend pregnant? Whatever your reason, you need us at GottaGetMarriedNow.com. We specialize in last-minute weddings. Active duty, military veterans and retired discounts are available. Visit us at GottaGetMarriedNow.com
You're tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the Internet's foremost location for the most honest insight, thorough analysis, and unfiltered opinion on the world of sports. Now, once again, here's the man of the hour, After Hours, your host, KJ Green. You are back in the Hoodwood. My name is KJ Green. And Snuffy says it best when he says he loves the playoffs, and I do too. There is an old, there's a line from the uh, very obscure song called New Agenda off of Janet Jackson's Janet album. Uh, It's a line by Chuck D., one of my favorite all-time rappers, where he bluntly says, time to step it up, step it up. It's playoff time. And that's precisely what it is. 18 teams have been excused from the room, and now you have the 14 best teams in the NFL left, stop snickering at the 8-9 Bucks or the 9-8 Jags or the 9-8 Seahawks. They have won their way on stage and are trying to get down the road to State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona, where the 57th Super Bowl will be held in one month. The NFL dubs this Super Wild Card Weekend, and the 14 teams that are duking it out, well, I should say 12 teams because the Chiefs and Eagles are sitting out this weekend on their respective Barco lounges and man caves, watching with a detached interest of who are going to advance to the divisional round where they will be waiting as their conference's respective number one seeds. They have earned a bye not only to the divisional round, but will host the lowest seeded team that makes it through this first round. So, being the number two team does have a bit of weight for the Bills and the Niners respectively, for if they win their respective games, they will have home playoff games the next week. Now, the playoff schedule for the NFL has greatly expanded and has made the season longer. The 2022 regular season ended on January 8th. Think that 46 years ago, the Raiders beat the Vikings in the 11th Super Bowl on Super Bowl's dated January 9th in 1977. The NFL, season, uh, NFL postseason used to only be one game at one time between the conference winners. Now a team has to win two or three games just to get to the conference championship, much less the Super Bowl. We've long since grown used to being playoff games being held in January. But if you come to think about it, the last Super Bowl being played in January was 20 years ago when the Bucks beat the Raiders to win their first Super Bowl. Submitted for your review, perusal, and approval are this week's playoff picks with odds being provided by ESPN for entertainment and comparison purposes only. If you have to ask why I say that all the time, you really don't need to know. Let's start off with the January 14th games, Saturday afternoon and evening games, respectively. NFC wildcard game starts off the day with the 9-8 and eight Seahawks, who are the number 7 seed. And number three wild card taking on the 13 and 4 49ers, the number two seed, and the NFC West champion. Game being played at Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara, California. 4:30 kickoff on Fox. Joe Davis and Moose Johnston are on the call. The 49ers are nine and a half point favorites. Last week, the Seahawks defeated the Rams 19 to 16 in overtime, while the 49ers defeated the Cardinals 44 to 13. These teams have met previously one time in the postseason, with Seahawks defeating the 49ers 23-17 to win the 2013 NFC Championship. Now, the Seahawks had to wait breathlessly to see if they would even make it to the playoffs. They qualified after the Lions upset the Packers. Something somebody said was going to happen. Was it, was it Snuffy? Benny? Anybody? 
No, excuse me. I said the Lions were going to beat the Packers and get the Seahawks into the playoffs, which I'm very proud to say that I was right. Anyway, the Niners have been more or less sitting around for the last month waiting on their seeding and opponent, but have just kept winning and winning and winning on their way to a 10-game winning streak. Brock Purdy has played way, way above expectations, to be honest, and the multi-dimensional Christian McCaffrey has helped matters so much since he was rescued from the gulag that was the Carolina Panthers. He has given the Niners' offense real punch. That being said, the Niners' defense is the one that really deserves the focus. They've only given up 20 or more points twice in their 10-game winning streak, and they've laid legit claim on being the best in the game. Now, if Geno Smith doesn't win Comeback Player of the Year award, they should stop giving out the award altogether, period. He has carried the Seahawks. A lot further than a lot of people expected them to go. And in some games, they really had no business winning. That said, also, it will be still tough sledding for the Seahawks, who will go into San Francisco knowing that the Niners have beaten them handily in both meetings. I see no reason why the Niners' offense won't grind their way to a comfortable win at home to lead off the playoffs. The pick is San Francisco. Next on the docket. We have the 10 and 7 Chargers, who are the number 5 AFC seed and number 1 wild card, taking on the 9 and 8 Jaguars, who are the number 4 seed and the AFC South champions. Game being played at TIAA Bankfield in Jacksonville, 815 kickoff on NBC. Al Michaels and Tony Dungy on the call. Chargers are two point favorites. Last week, the Chargers lost to the Broncos 31-28, while the Jaguars defeated the Titans 20-16 to win the AFC South Championship. This is the first playoff meeting between these two teams. The Chargers lead the overall series 9-4, but the Jaguars won the last meeting 38-10 in Week 5. Now, the Chargers quietly put together enough wins to garner a playoff spot and face a surprising Jags team that won a tense duel with one of their hated rivals, to win the AFC title and lay claim to a wholly unexpected division title. Now this is a sneaky good game with both teams can score points in bunches and both are led by dynamic quarterbacks, Trevor Lawrence for the Jags and Justin Herbert for the Chargers, who are both respectively making their first playoff appearances. Both teams have capable defenses that are opportunistic and chock full of young stars. This is a tough game to call, to be honest. But I'm going to take a chance here on a small upset. I think that the Jags have been living on borrowed time for quite a while. And the last quarter of the season needed a massive swan dive by the Titans just to get into the playoffs. That also being said, many people forget that the Chargers just missed the postseason the last two years straight and have been playing very well down the stretch, ignoring both their last uh, last week playoff, the last week flop against the Broncos and the 38-10 loss, blowout loss to the Jags. Ignore them both. The, I think the Chargers go to Duval and say, so what? And knock off the Jags. Stealing a victory, the pick here is the Los Angeles Chargers. Next on the docket, we have the Sunday games. First off, we have the 9-8 Dolphins, who have the number 7 seed and the number 3 wild card, taking on the 13-3 Bills, who are the number 2 seed and the AFC East champions. Game being played at Highmark Stadium in Orchard Park, New York, 
1 p.m. kickoff on CBS, Jim Nance and Tony Romo on the call. Bills 13-point favorites. Last week, the Dolphins defeated the Jets 11-6, while the Bills defeated the Patriots 35-23. This is the team's fifth postseason meeting overall. The Bills have won three of the four meetings, with winning 44-34 in the 1990 wildcard game, 29-10 in the 92 AFC Championship game, and 37-22 in the 1995 AFC wildcard round, while the Dolphins have won the most recent meeting, 23-17, in the 1999 wildcard round. These two teams have played a pair of tight, thrilling games with the home team winning both. But the Bills look like the more confident and competent team. Their offense is looking a lot more sound than the skittish Dolphins, who nearly let their suddenly anemic offense possibly mess up a once sure thing playoff berth. Combine that with Tua Tagovailoa not being available for the game. He has not cleared concussion protocol. Skylar Thompson, not Tua Tagovailoa, will be making their first, they're making their maiden playoff version. No Tua, no chance. The Bills will not mess up a chance to route one of their hated rivals, especially in front of the Bills Mafia. It's almost money in the bank for the Bills at home. The pick is Buffalo. Next on the docket, we have the 9-7-1 Giants, who are the number 16 NFC, the number 2 NFC wildcard, taking on the 13-4 Vikings, who are the number 3 seed as NFC North champions. Game being played at U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis, 4.30 kickoff on Fox, Kevin Burkhart and Greg Olson on the call. The Vikings are three-point favorites. Last week, the Giants lost to the Eagles 22-16, while the Vikings defeated the Bears 29-16. Now, this is the team's fourth meeting in the playoffs, but first meeting in Minnesota. The Giants won 17-10 in the 1993 wildcard round and 41-0 in the 2000 NFC Championship, while the Vikings won 23-22 in the 1997 wildcard. All three of those previous games were being played at Old Giants Stadium. It's deja vu all over again, kind of. The last visit by the Giants what was the last game for the Giants playing in U.S. Bank Stadium was on Christmas Eve, which the last time the Vikings even played at home, which was a walk-off 61-yard winner and a field goal kick by, by Craig Joseph. The G-Men talk if they're not, as if they're not bothered by the notoriously noisy crowd in Minneapolis, but the reality is this is playoff time, and that's a whole lot different at home in the playoffs. The Vikings aren't afraid of tight games, and they feel they can win them by muscle memory. I think that the Vikings can finally put together a completely different performance, play solid wall-to-wall, and force Danny Dimes to crack in his very first playoff appearance. The pick is Minnesota. Next on the docket, we have the 10-7 Ravens, who are the number 6 seed AFC, Number, three, number two AFC wildcard, taking on the 12-4 Bengals, who are the number three seed and AFC North champions. Game being played at Paycor Stadium in Cincinnati. 8-15 kickoff on NBC. Mike Tirico and Chris Collinsworth on the call. The Bengals are eight-and-a-half point favorites. This is the team's first ever playoff meeting. Last week, the Bengals defeated the Ravens 27-16 in the season finale for both teams. Now, the Ravens limp into the playoffs not knowing if they will have Lamar Jackson at quarterback, which all signs are leaning toward him not playing. And if, he's, if, if he is able to play and able to shake off the rust enough to engineer an upset, 
That seems highly unlikely as they face a Bengals team for their part who are feeling very confident that they can get around their offensive line woes and have more than enough on the ball to carry the day. Now, the Bengals have been about smashing perceived notorious notions about themselves. That being said, I think that playing and winning tight games at night will be one of the last ones that they want to break, and I think they carry the day and get that done. The pick is Cincinnati. Finally, we have the Monday night playoff game, which have the 12-5 Cowboys, who are the number five seed and the number one wild card, taking on the 8-9 Buccaneers, who have the number four NFC seed and the NFC South champions. Game being played at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, 8-15 kickoff on ABC and ESPN. The announcers are Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. The Cowboys are two and a half point favorites. Last week, the Cowboys lost to the Commanders 26-6, while the Buccaneers lost to the Falcons 30-17. The brief playoff history between these two teams, they've played twice. The Cowboys have won them both in back-to-back seasons. Cowboys beating the Bucks 38-0 in the 81 playoffs and 30-17 in the 82 NFC playoffs. This is the first time these teams have met in Tampa. The Pokes are as big a mystery as you can get. They are the team that systematically destroyed a number of playoff-bound teams, or the team that's folded meekly to teams like Washington, Jacksonville, and Philadelphia, and also the team that they faced this week in Week 1. I don't like the Bucks' style of play, and Tom Brady has been more or less doing it with mirrors. But this smells like a trap. I, I, the Pokes, on paper, are the better team. But they have a bad history of folding up in playoffs, especially Dak Prescott. I think this will give Jerry Jones an excuse to fire Mike McCarthy. He'll likely end up in Denver or Carolina and hire the coach he wants and covets in Sean Payton. Pick his Tampa Bay. And there you have it. Last week, to finish the regular season, I was 12-4 with both my lock and upset correct. Final regular 22 regular season Tallies are as, as follows. I went 170, 99, and 3. Two ties and one cancellation on those three. Locks, I was 14 and 4. And upsets, I was 11 and 7. Second final timeout. Come back with the Hoodwood Hot Five. Fat Dap and Head Slap. And the final word from the Wood. Sports from the Hoodwood heads down the home stretch after this. Your new year's resolution for 2023. Here now live in living color, 
black by popular demand. Your host, KJ Green. Riding third and headed for home here in the Hoodwood. Let's finish up strong with the Hoodwood Hot Five. That gets loud. And the final word from the wood. Now, the Hoodwood Hot Five, since we're beyond the days of polling and, you know, top teams and everything, we'll just take five hot takes, five subjects, and I'll riff on them like a uh, freestyle guitarist. Our first topic regards that team, the Minnesota Vikings. My favorite football team. A lot of people knock them because even though they went 13-4, and they had a negative three-point differential. They scored 414 points and allowed 417 points. They were 11-0 and in one-score contests, so which means they've won a lot of the close games. But their four losses was a 37-point evisceration by the Cowboys, a 17-point beatdown by the Eagles, an 11-point loss to the Lions, and a 24-point loss to the Packers. That was all their losses. Their 11 wins, with the exception of their season opener against Green Bay, which they won 24-7, and their season finale against the Chicago Bears, that they won 29-16. All the other scores were by 10 points or less, and all of them were by one score. (coughs) Excuse me. That being said, why are they getting knocked while the 8-9 Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who who won their division as well, but with a losing record and a 45-point negative point differential, are still seen as Super Bowl contenders. Why is that? Is it because of Tom Brady, who I think is vastly overrated now? Is it because of their offense, which only scored 20 points three times, two of them being losses? Or is it because of their fearsome defense? Well, their defense is decent. That being said, why is all the love getting going to Tampa Bay and a lot of skepticism being thrown at Minnesota? Now, I read this last week. I did a final word from the wood in our second Hoodwood Hot 5 topic. I did a, uh, my final word was about the uh, late great Pelé who passed away on December 29th. The president of FIFA has proposed that Every country have at least one soccer stadium named after in honor of Pelé. Now, while I think that is a very noble proposal, I think it's a very great way to honor um, a soccer icon that Pelé was, it's not going to fly in the U.S. (laughs) I'm sorry. As much as... The U.S. is still slowly embracing soccer. They're not going to go wild out over it like European countries do, like teams, like countries in the Caribbean do, like teams in South America do. It's just not going to happen. And naming a stadium, especially MLS teams who are trying to get as much money as they can, they're not going to pass up naming rights to honor Pelé. As much as it makes sense, it's not going to happen. I mean, for example, FC Cincinnati has a naming rights deal with TQL, which is a logistics company. TQL paid them about $25 million to name for the naming rights to that stadium. 
Do you think that a, uh, a major league soccer team is going to give up that kind of money to honor a, a, a player that many soccer patrons in the United States never saw play? No, it's not going to happen, dog. Our third topic, which we is a, a great news out of Cincinnati, the University of Cincinnati Medical Center releasing Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin, and he returned to Buffalo. Now, he's still going to be undergoing treatment and going to be doing a lot more rehab. His season basically is over. Now, the Bills also, the NFL did right by, by Hamlin. They are paying him his full salary. Now, there was a clause in his contract which said that if he went on IR, that he was going to get a reduced salary. The uh, Buffalo Bills basically went to the NFL and said, no, nah, we're going to do right by this kid. We're going to do right by him to make sure he gets his full salary. NFL signed off on it, and DeMar Hamlin will get his full salary for the for the rest of the uh, regular season. Well, the regular season is already over, but he will probably also get a playoff share as well as his regular salary, which I thought was really good. And even with Hamlin being, you know, slowly recovering, the 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 team, you know, honoring Hamlin, you know, he, he had a FaceTime call with him and and he was encouraging the team, pumping them up. He's still showing he's still worried about other people. He's still making trying to make sure that other people are getting something back. He um had a t-shirt that was made, all profits going to his um to his charity, the one that's got over nine million dollars, his GoFundMe, which I think is is like I said, a beautiful testament to the spirit of man. And Hamlin is not going woe with me. He is trying to look out how he can help people, even with him being, you know, recovering from the cardiac arrest. He's still looking out for folks. So I think it's just a brilliant, beautiful thing the way Hamlin has been handling himself, you know, the way and the UC medical staff, and I can't say enough about them, the way they handle everything. Just just a great feel-good story all the way around, making the best of a, of a really, a potentially tragic situation, but it's made that a really positive situation. Our fourth topic for the Hoodwood Hot Five, and I love hockey, love hockey, love it, but it's a game that is best watched live. Watching games on TV, you don't get the essence, the speed, the, the the physicality of the game. That being said, NHL is going to have, you know, it has, it has had its winter classic. Uh, Boston and Pittsburgh played up in Fenway Park. Fairly warm day for New Year's, especially to be playing a hockey game outside. It's a winter classic's time past. I mean, the novelty, I mean, going back to where players playing outside from where the way they grew up playing. But is the Winter Classic, has it outlived its usefulness? Has it outlived the point where people get excited about it? I didn't hear a lot of buzz about it. The problem with the Winter Classic is it's right around New Year's Day. What are you looking at on New Year's Day? Bowl games. You're looking at college football. They dominate the scene. And if not them dominating the scene, pro football. Is it time to either move the Winter Classic to a different date or scrap it all together? 
That also being said, the NHL All-Star Game is the 14th. The, if you can tell me what the format of the All-Star Game is, I'll give you $100 without looking it up. Don't look it up. Don't say no, because you don't know how the format is. You have four divisions. Each of them have their own little All-Star team, and they play a round robin short games throughout the day for, for the All-Star Game. Do you really think you can sit through three, you know, three mini games? Does anybody even really care about the NHL All-Star game anymore? Have they really ever? And I'm saying this is a hockey fan. But in the cases of the Winter Classic and the All-Star game, have they run their course? And our Hoodwood Hot Five, Topic 5, Snuffy making a joke about Carlos Correa should be called the boomerang because he came back. The weird saga of Carlos Correa may end where it started. Minnesota Twins signing the well-traveled shortstop to a six-year, $200 million deal. Now you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Carlos Correa leave the Twins as a free agent? Turning down, he playing one great season in Minnesota before turning down the option for the second and third year to test free agency. Yes, he did. And he signed with the San Francisco Giants. He couldn't pass the physical. So the New York Mets were like, well, if you can't pass the physical, why don't you come here? Come play with us. Don't play with them. Play with us. So the Giants gave Korea a 13-year, $340 million contract. When that fell through, he signed, was going to sign with the Mets for a 12-year, $315 million contract. And he was going to move from shortstop to third base because the Mets already have Francisco Lindor. Small problem. He couldn't pass his physical there. So the Mets worried about an earlier leg injury that he suffered when he was a minor leaguer. Backed off the deal. In swoops the Twins who can get Korea, not so much as a bargain price. I mean, $200 million ain't a bargain price. But compared to what they would, what the Giants, then the Mets were willing to offer, it was a bargain. And the contract can vest for an additional four years. So it could be, Carlos Correa could be making, doing a 10-year, $270 million deal. Now, Carlos Correa is 27. He's in the prime of his career. The Minnesota Twins, not a big market team, but willing to shell out the money to keep, well, I should say get back one of its premier stars. Carlos Correa, well-traveled, going from San Francisco to New York and back to Minnesota, maybe was the baseball's version of a boomerang. He came back. And Minnesota Twins fans are very, very happy. That's my high five. What's yours? Our fat dap and head slap of the week, uh, following the theme as football heavy this week, our fat dap goes to Naheem Hines of the Buffalo Bills, who returned not one, but two, count them, one, two scores, kickoff returns for scores in the Bills' 35-23 win 
over the Patriots in Week 18. Now, Bills quarterback Josh Allen pointed out a very spooky fact. The last time the Bills had a kick return for a touchdown was three years and three months ago. And I say, what's the big deal about three years, three months? Who wears number three on the Buffalo Bills? Some guy named Lamar Hamlin. Now, that is spooky. Our, I said our fat dad, the first one. <laughs> our head slap of the week goes to Quay Walker of the Green Bay Packers, a team I really can't stand. And Quay Walker, for reasons that no one can really figure out, decided he wanted to shove a Detroit Lions trainer who was coming out on the field to attend to a down player. That little course of action got him ejected from the game. It also got the Green Bay Packers an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, which gave the Lions 15 yards and would eventually set up not only a touchdown, but the game-winning touchdown that knocked the Packers out of the playoffs. Or she didn't knock them out of the playoffs, knocked them out of playoff contention. That shove knocked them out of play. Try it again. That shove not only cost. Try it again. Walker's foolish action not only got him ejected from the game, but also got the Packers a 15-yard unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. That in turn set up the Lions at the doorstep, the goal line for what would end up being the game-winning score. That game-winning score for the Lions, upset of the week, didn't I call that? Yes, I did. That ended up knocking the Packers out of playoff contention. Head slap to Quay Walker for not thinking at all and more than likely cost his team a playoff spot. And now, without much further ado, let's go to the final word from the wood. makes sense for me if you could lovey smith got the gate after one season one damn season he was hired after the texans fired david cully another coach of color who had went four and 13 in one season in houston one damned season now i think cully's initial hiring seemed like a flippant casual move to get around the Rooney rule. And he had no chance given the Deshaun Watson mess. Cully didn't. He had zero chance. None. Zero. Now, Lovey Smith, a coach who is beyond reproach and any kind of suspicion, was well-traveled, bouncing from college to pros over the past 20-plus years. But he had even less of a chance inheriting the mess that was the Texans with Deshaun Watson now gone, and no running game, and uh, bum with one quarterback, he was run after one year. How does that make sense? I feel like coaches of color get less opportunity to ply their craft and have a shorter rope. You might point at Mike Tomlin, though, and cite the exception uh, the rule, given the Steelers have only had three coaches in the past 53 years, he may be the exception rather than the rule. But all those quarter, all those quarterbacks, all those coaches, try that again. All the coaches have been with the Steelers at least fifteen years. But I'm already hearing cat calls for Tomlin's job, 
Though given the mess the Steelers were with the departure of Ben Roethlisberger and the breaking in of rookie quarterback Kenny Pickett, the fact that he got the team to 9-8 and eight at the finish line with a late shot at the playoff berth says more to his coaching than anything. Now, at present, you have only Tomlin, Todd Bowles, Mike McDaniel, Robert Saleh, and Robert, uh, Robert, and Ron Rivera. Let's try that again. At present, only Todd Bowles, Mike McDaniel, the aforementioned Mike Tomlin, Robert Saleh, and Ron Rivera remain the only coaches of color in the NFL. Many think, people think that Bowles and McDaniel might have saved their jobs by garnering playoff berths. Saleh is not on my hot seat just yet, as the Jets improved from 4-13 and to 7-10, and but there still are grumblings in Gotham that improvement has not been faster and more forthcoming. Rivera has been treading water over the last three seasons with 7-9, 7-10, and 8-8-1 records over the past three seasons, though the Commanders were in playoff contention until late in the season and ended with a soothing rout of hated rival Dallas in the season finale. But his seat is still fairly warm, to be sure. The fact that remains that there are coaches of color that are getting passed up for head coaching slots. How long are we going to see Byron Leftwich, Demeco Ryans, Larry Foote, Casey Rogers, and Eric Bieniemy, just to name a few, keep getting passed up, while Bum of the Month Club retreads like Dennis Allen, Josh McDaniels and Bill O'Brien keep getting second and third chances and virtual unknowns like Cliff Kingsbury and Josh McCown get possible looks. Josh McCown is a high school coach. How is he going to make be an NFL coach that fast? While you have, like I said, coaches of color having to wait and wait and wait. The waiting should stop. There are qualified coaches of color that are just waiting and have been waiting a long time. The fact that the Rooney Rule is still being virtually ignored by a lot of these head coaches is an absolute travesty. And it needs to be corrected and fast. And that is the final word from the wood. Now with the music coming up in the background, you know that means your time here in the Hoodwood is just about done. And I thank you so much for your visit again this week. Now the show's email is kjgreen at sportsfromthehoodwood.com. Please send me emails regarding show topic ideas, questions, comments, and both praise and criticism. Welcome your correspondence, and I'll try to get back to you in a timely manner. Now the show's website, sportsfromthehoodwood.com. That's back catalog of shows running back 10 years. I'm getting a little bit behind about updating stuff on there, but I'll try to do my best to get stuff updated on there as quickly as possible. Different stuff that you won't necessarily find on the show or on the Facebook page, which is also Sports from the Hoodwood, which you can join and become a member. There's a lively group there. We have some great discussions on there. Get on there. Subscribe. We're on YouTube as well, so you want to like. Smash that subscribe button. Hit the like. Also does so much good for the show. A lot of funny stuff I put on the YouTube page as well for Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises. And the video version, of course, is there as well as uploading onto Twitter, which is at Hoodwood Sports. 
that feed is updated on the regular but also other crazy stuff that I find on the internet here and there as well. Uh, like and tweet me, I will tweet you back as quickly as possible. The audio versions on Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iMusic, and find podcast platforms and providers. If the Hoodwood is not on your favorite, ask for it. Send me a line, I'll see what I can get you done to get the Hoodwood on your favorite podcast platform. Special thanks as always to Rage Pictures for their production assistance to the show. And that's it from Hoodwood, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Until next time from the Hoodwood, fellow sports fans, I'm KJ Green. 30. Sports from the Hoodwood is a Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises presentation of a 551 Audio and Films production. 